Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again back after a little while is Phoebe Watson. Hello. Feels like it's been a while. You've been, I think you've kind of bookended this season. Mm Mm-hmm. I tend to do that. (laughs) I rope you in at the start and then I squeeze you in at the end. (laughs) When you get stuck and you need somebody else to talk to. (laughs) But to be fair, this is an episode that we've been planning for quite a while. We've like been like a year. Yeah, we've been hinting at it for quite a while, and that I think we've been mentioning the fact that we've been re-listening to the Lord of the Rings this year for a book club that we're in. Um, and this is a a topic in the Lord of the Rings that I am very passionate about. Uh, before we get to it, though, I do want to say I'm kind of aware that. This is a year in which Tolkien is very much in the news because of the Rings of Power series. And if you were expecting us to be timely and on topic and, you know, with the moment uh, and to be talking about the Rings of Power, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, we, we have no opinions really on the Rings of Power in that we haven't watched it. I don't have an Amazon Prime account and I wasn't particularly keen to get one. I tried to stay off Amazon as much as possible and it felt like tempting fate so you know I mean you didn't take it as like the great lure to subscribe (laughs) (laughs) no I already feel bad enough about my audible account but anyway um you know I maybe at some point I'll watch it if uh if I get the opportunity but we haven't seen it and so this is not a rings of power Tolkien episode despite its seeming timeliness yeah and we're also only talking about the lord of the rings yes we are not talking about are we even talking about the appendices? Mm-mm. Not really. Um, not the Cimmerellian, none of the like legendarium of it. Just the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we have been enjoying diving back into the Lord of the Rings. I have reread it multiple times, you know, throughout my life and have always loved doing so. However, this particular re-listen on the audiobooks has been kind of special because... Uh, sharing it with a friend with Phoebe has been a lot of fun especially because you actually haven't reread them in quite a while yeah I read them as a teenager and then I would have known the movies well Mm. but I hadn't come back to the books and they'd been on my I need to go back to these for quite a number of years but we finally got to it (laughs) yeah in some ways I always think it's quite fun because obviously with our two surnames uh the pairing that we normally get is Sherlock and Watson but we also have what I feel is like another fun parallel which is that I as the cradle catholic was definitely the more prominent Tolkien fan and interestingly you as the uh convert now not from atheism but from Anglicanism to Catholicism um but yeah, when I met you as an Anglican, you were the staunch uh, C.S. Lewis devotee. I mean, I still am. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think... <laughs> that hasn't changed. The two of us have kind of shared and exchanged our two loves. Mm-hmm. And so I've definitely become a much bigger C.S. Lewis fan since I've met you. I think you've grown to love Tolkien a lot more since... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but this was this was a real in, like experiment to me to see what you would think of it. You know, did you say it was 10 years since you'd reread them? Oh, it could have been easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how long it had, like, 
how long it had been since I'd seen the movies. Even mm. that had been a while. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of something I did grow up with. Yeah. Um, and that, like, my brother and my dad would have been quite into mm-hmm. the movie versions. Um, and of all the movies and books in the world, the movies tell a large chunk of the story, mm-hmm. um, which then it's been really interesting to see what the differences have been between the two and, like, subtler characters. There's just a lot more depth the book there always is um but we're not actually going to talk about that today no i think there might be yeah there might be some references to the films but we're really focusing on the books and like i said yeah i've been really excited you know i'm a big advocate for the films but getting to see your your perspective maybe your more adult perspective on the books has been really exciting and then also as we said we're doing this as part of a book club getting to share it with other people and uh, I, uh, if anyone from our book club is listening, I think there might be one or two, um, they will know that I have been harping on this theme for every single meeting throughout the year. So now I, I get to take centre stage and do a whole podcast on it. I mean, at least a couple of those people in the book club have also been on this podcast. That's, that's true. So they're kind of obliged to listen at this point. <laughs> Well, you know, I think actually Ben Conroy, who helps run the book club, has been on the podcast, but I think he has never listened to an episode. Shocking. (laughs) It is possible. But yes, so the theme that I wanted to talk about and get on my soapbox about is uh, this this kind of, it's a theme in the book. It's also the way the book is constructed, but it's just an element of storytelling that Tolkien does, which is to leave his characters in the dark a lot of the time and forces them to make choices and decisions about how to move forward, about how to act without having many key parts of information. And it's it's a recurring theme throughout the whole story. And it's also kind of interwoven into the way that the story is told in its sort of leapfrogging style between the different strands of the story, most notably in the second two books. You've got like one book that has one set of characters and the other book which has another set of characters and you're you're, you're not cutting between them in the same way. Um, and so it's just a really fascinating theme to me because I think it's quite difficult to do. I think for authors, it would naturally be a lot easier to have ways, especially in fantasy stories of with magic or magical creatures or magical forms of transportation or all of these things. Yeah, you asked me for a few examples of that. Um, yeah. And like they immediately spring to mind of like, you've got flying dragons transmitting information, like people flying around or um, characters that can speak mind to mind or just ways to circumvent that information lag between the two, between characters. Yeah, whereas I think Tolkien does this really masterful thing. And like I said, it's not to do down any other stories that don't take this approach. Uh, But I do think it's a very deliberate and difficult choice to make, which is to really enforce the um, strictures of space and time and communication that would have been the case before, let's say, digital technology or even things like telegrams before that, that like you are restricted to whether you can get someone to 
either bring a message or tell someone key pieces of information and that requires them to traverse spaces that like all of these things can get in the way of information being um, shared and you know we're going to go into all of the kind of well not all of them I, <laughs> I was gonna say this is a topic I feel really strongly about uh, I, I've actually had to stop myself researching this in advance of the podcast because if, the, if I researched more I think this podcast would just get totally out of hand in terms of how long and detailed it was uh, if anyone <laughs> would like to um, commission me to write a book on this topic, I will take that in a heartbeat. This is something I feel really strongly about. I think it's a wonderful theme, both within the book itself, but also in what Tolkien is trying to tell us about how to act with virtue and how to interact with the information around us. Like I think it's both in interesting to the story itself and also interesting in the ways that it's kind of conveying a message to us as the readers but so you know we won't be able to cover everything I've had to really limit myself but we're going to pull out some key points and key moments in which people make decisions um, without the key information but I think the most obvious one is that at the breaking of the fellowship Sam and Frodo go off and they're in their attempt to destroy the ring and then all of this action happens all of these battles all of these great decisions that are about people's lives and the ways that you're running a war are then being made without the information of what is happening to Sam and Frodo and having to continue forward with the expectation that they're still going forward, with the expectation that their task is still at least attempting to be achieved, but without direct knowledge. He doesn't really allow the other characters insights into what is happening with Sam and Frodo. There's one instance in which Faramir reports back that he has seen them, but what he's saying is that they are being led by a guide that wishes them evil into the most dangerous path into Mordor. And so as much as it might be a moment of reassurance saying that Sam and Frodo are still alive, the mission is going ahead, uh, I don't really know whether it reassures anyone particularly strongly that it's going to be a successful mission. <laughs> yeah, and that really ties into another big theme of the books, which is so big that it's a topic of, of itself that we're not really going to delve into, but is hope and despair, which... When they're given that information, the temptation is to despair. Yeah. Um, and the right course is hope. Yeah. And that's reoccurring throughout all this like information and action. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we're just going to have to skim the surface of that particular yeah. topic. And before we dive into the topic proper, I just want to give, first of all, a shout out that the kind of the core of this idea came from actually watching the appendices to the Lord of the Rings films, which have these interviews or these talking head moments. And one of them is with this medieval expert called Tom Shippey, who I've gone on to read a good bit of his stuff. I really respect a lot of what he has to say. I think he has a very good insight into a lot of the things that Tolkien is trying to convey. But he makes this point specifically about the Palantirs that, you know, looking into them, people get some information, but it actually leads them to the wrong conclusion. And so he talks about this theme of communication. And I do, do just want to preface that at the start we have his book here the road to middle earth where he goes into it in more detail and we're definitely going to be reading out 
chunks of it, but I kind of just wanted to shout out that this is actually where that kind of idea started from. I remember listening to that and being like, oh, that puts so much of the story. It's like a puzzle piece of saying like, oh, this is really integral to the story. And then I think the other thing I want to just touch on before we go into like the nitty gritty details of the the moments in the Lord of the Rings is just to give maybe a, a point which gives a perspective of why Tolkien was so interested in this area. And I think it's it, it's kind of natural in some ways because he was interested in language, which means you're interested in communication. And he's interested in medieval times, which are technologically speaking, kind of the era in which Middle Earth is, is set. Uh, you know, it, it's not Edwardian. They, I've always thought like of, of all of the uh, technology that I, I would kind of love to see in Middle Earth is bicycles is maybe one of them. <laughs> bicycles in the Shire would be amazing. Right, right. But, you know, they don't exist. It's, it's pre all of that because actually bicycles are a surprisingly late invention. But yeah, it, it has all of these restrictions of time and place and, and the ability to move people and information around. Um, but specifically, I think he has an extra element of interest in it because of his experience in World War One, where he was um, he was appointed battalion signal officer. And so his job in the Battle of the Somme, he was responsible for maintaining communications between officers on the front line and more senior army officers. And, you know, that uh, directing the battle, giving information, telling people where to go. And in many ways, he was dealing with a lot of technology. And again, <laughs> little hint, technology is a theme we're going to come back to. But, you know, actually, we're going to talk about that in more detail. But there is an image of Tolkien as a kind of Luddite. And in our episode with Holly Ordway that we did, I think about a year ago now, which was amazing, she and I were discussing how that's just fabricated. It's not true. And really, that should be really obvious because of the work he did in the war. He was responsible for learning how to use field telephones and flares and signal lamps and Morse codes and even like carrier pigeons. And like the World War One is that interesting combination where you've got like a lot of old world sensibilities and even old world quote technology like carrier pigeons coming up against like battle tanks and um, barbed wire and, you know, field telephones. These things would be really new. Um, And just that sense of like the difficulty of communication and how that can cost you your life, how that impacts how you as an officer and a soldier carry out your tasks, knowing that maybe you've missed some communication, knowing that maybe the messages have gotten garbled or that you're waiting for a message and it hasn't come, that like these are real things that impact people's lives and that people are forced to make decisions when they don't have all of the information that would help them make, you know, the best decision to help protect their life or to help have success in battle or all of these things that, yeah, you just have to keep going without that. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to understand when thinking about Tolkien and his, like, understanding of battle, Mm. that he really knows how the information you're acting on impacts the decisions that you make. Yeah. And I really love that you brought up the point that he also um, had the experience of the Germans intercepting British communication and Mm. modern technology having both its benefits and its failures and having to fall back on like older, more trustworthy methods of sending a runner 
Yeah. Which sounds utterly daft to us. Yeah. But you're like, no, we've got to trust this information to a runner to carry the note to the person it needs to go to. Yeah. Because any other method is too dangerous right now. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be really interesting when we're looking at like, the planters mm. and that kind of like technology side of communication and information. Yeah. And so I think it's just something that really distinguishes him from a lot of other stories. We touch on it a little bit, but in some ways I think it's quite easy to slip into just saying, oh, it would be so much more convenient if all my characters knew what was happening in this other part. Um, I, I think I've only read, I've read the first Game of Thrones book, so I don't know this from firsthand, I think, but from my friends who enjoy that series, they talk about that actually being something that they enjoyed about the books, which is that, you know, if you're stuck off out in the middle of nowhere, you're not in communication with other people. And then the series, I believe, collapsed that. And, and you know, it was like, no, it's just easier if they can show up in a day's notice or whatever. Um, and it's interesting how that, that element of the reality of it can really draw you into his story and also really work in heightening the suspense and the drama and we saw that with reading Dracula which yeah, is again absolutely. as an epistolary book you know it's all about letters and communications and you're waiting for letters to arrive and it's so thrilling when you're trying to like hope that the post comes on time yeah like I'm reading Dracula the rereading Dracula at the moment and there's a point where um like the letter or the telegram says delay 22 hours mm. and that 22 hours is the difference of life and death yeah and it's so heartbreaking and yet like so important to the whole narrative that it's about what information do you have and what information are you acting on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's our preamble done. I think we can dive into what section one I'm going to just call like the some key points of characters making these decisions without it, like without the information that they need. Just to kind of highlight the ways that this crops up throughout the stories in, in a variety of different ways. And so I think that like the first major one is uh, Frodo leaving Bag End and mm. waiting for Gandalf is supposed to come back and be with him. And he's been, they had this plan, you know, to for him to leave Bag End on his birthday. So that means all the way into autumn. And it's quite a really slow run up to him actually leaving. I think it catches you by surprise when you're reading it. Like, you know, obviously in the film, you've got that sense of like, well, now that we have this information, we need to go, go, go. And in some ways, maybe Tolkien would suggest that that's actually maybe what they should have done. Yeah. Uh, but that there's a sort of lethargy to it. I'm going to pack up. I'm going to move somewhere else. I'm going to sell bag end. And, and I'm going to do this whole pretense so that people don't know that I'm leaving. And that becomes so much less of a priority as the as the danger rises. And so, yeah, there's this big gap where he's getting ready to say goodbye. And then Gandalf doesn't show. They're on the road. They're having these near misses. And they're, they're you know, the black riders are hot on their tail, but they're still waiting for Gandalf. Like, and I think it's amazing that when they see the black riders on the road, at one point Frodo says, I wish I had waited for Gandalf, Frodo muttered, but perhaps it would have only made matters worse. And I'm like, yes, of course, Frodo. Are you saying you'd rather have been home when the black riders called? Like, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> you heard the black riders asking where you were as you were leaving your house. And yeah. the only thing that saves him from that at the beginning is the gaffer 
telling them that he th- that they're already gone. Yeah. Like, and, and, that, and that was even a miscommunication. Miscommunication. Miscommunication to the enemy, which yeah. we'll be talking about later. That's how close it is. And I think it's so interesting that the reason it's that close is there's this letter left for him in Brie mm. that was supposed to be sent three months ago yeah. and didn't get sent. Yeah. Um, and yet there's also a sense that you kind of feel like Frodo allowed that delay of information to hold him back and to take that lethargic approach while he's waiting for the information yeah. instead of acting on the plan that was already made and just going forward. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because you even see it in the ways that, you know, when they meet Gildor and mm-hmm. the elves. Yeah. Um, because he even says, like, for it seems to me that you have set out only just in time, if indeed you are in time. Yeah. You know? And even the idea that, like, I, to me, the whole section from Bag End to even Rivendell is all about whether you can get there in time because you've kind of set out too late, you know? And it crops up again and again uh, because we'll see, you know, even in the old forest, Tom Bombadil saves them from Old Man Willow. But he says that was his last time to go down into the forest and past Old Man Willow. He wouldn't wouldn't do it for the rest of the year. Not again till spring. Exactly. And so you really kind of got this last chance kind of dash across the the landscape which is amazing like I love that section I could read it again and again I just love it but it is that sense of like you're only just in time because you've missed this message and what comes into play and it's a theme that we're going to pick up a bit later in the episode is that once you're kind of in action that's when providence and luck and fate even have a chance to work in your life and have like the grace of opportunity to meet the right people. So the point is, is that they do meet Tom Bombadil right at the right moment. They do encounter Strider. They do find out what that Gandalf has been with, uh, been held back, and they're yeah. not going to keep waiting for him. Yeah. You know? The point is that they don't wait till Gandalf. They might leave late, but they yeah. do actually leave. Yeah. And uh, they haven't waited for him to arrive. Uh, the point is that they've started action mm-hmm. without the information. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think for me, the next big moment is the breaking of the fellowship. I think it comes earlier with like Gandalf falling down into the deeps in Casa Doom that like there is that sense of like nobody knew what we were going to do. Like what was Gandalf's plan? And that discussion is already happening. But it really like comes to a head when they're at Amon Hen and they're having that discussion of, you know, what do we do? Do we go to Gondor with Boromir or do we try to head straight for Mordor? There was this long silence in which no one spoke or moved. Well, Frodo, said Aragorn at last, I fear that the burden is laid upon you. You are the bearer appointed by the council. Your own way you alone can choose. In this matter I cannot advise you. I am not Gandalf, and though I have tried to bear his part, I do not know what design or hope he had for this hour if indeed he had any. Most likely, it seems that if he were here now, the choice would still wait on you. Such is your fate. It's such a powerful quote. Yeah. And yeah, I just think there's so much about that time in the the novel, which is like about having to choose to go on what is a hare-brained plan, mm. except that there's no plan. Yeah. It is amazing to me how much there just 
isn't a plan. And there wasn't really a plan in Gandalf's mind either, as far as we know. Yeah. Like, it might have been slightly better formed mm-hmm. of how they would get there, but the plan was still the same, which was to find the crack of doom and cast the ring into it. Yeah. And that's the harebrained scheme that they're going for. Yeah. Uh, which is, like, unbelievably ridiculous, but they've committed to it. Mm-hmm. And they've made the decision that it's the right thing to do. And that's what comes back again and again, is having to keep choosing that, mm. regardless of like the other information that's coming in that's trying to tell you that it's a bad idea. Yeah. And I even like practical things, like I know Frodo takes a good bit of time to look at maps, but I do wonder that like they don't bring a map, which I'm sure maps were relatively highly coveted items that there weren't plenty of them around but you would think for the the task that you know is to determine the fate of all men they might bring one (laughs) you know sacrificed a coveted map to this company yeah but i think it's because frodo so trusts that gandalf is going to be there or aragorn is going to be there that there will be he he doesn't come to the quest with the idea that he has any knowledge to bring um which i think is so important to what Tolkien is trying to say, that Frodo isn't chosen because he's the most knowledgeable or the most skilled or that he kind of brings anything to the table other than the fact that the ring came to him, that he has a legitimate claim on the ring, that he didn't steal it from anyone, that he didn't take it by force, that he has by some miracle managed to get hold of the ring, but also get hold of the ring in a way that is least likely to cause him to be tempted by it Mm -hmm. you know and so anyone else then has to he has to give it up to them and they also have to take it and like that balance of like what that's doing to people's motives is just almost too risky to play with and so he just offers himself as himself and it's such a powerful message in Tolkien that it isn't about skills it is about virtue and willingness he's just standing there on the edge at the breaking of the fellowship he's just standing there being like i guess i'll do it i think mordor is that way (laughs) Um, but yeah i mean all he knows is that it's not the way to Minas Tirith. that it's a different way from that he's some vague idea of like how to get there yeah but not a direct route and you see very quickly how badly they need Gollum as a guide yeah absolutely um, and that's one yeah. of the next kind of key points which is like how to get into Mordor I definitely don't feel like even Gandalf like maybe Gandalf had a plan of how to get as far as Mordor there is no real sense that anyone had because if you get to the gates of Mordor I mean what is there to do you know like what what is the plan even if you had Gandalf with you yeah. You probably even more trouble if you've got Gandalf with you at that point because he's like a visible power. Yeah. Like there's a, there is the element in which they're just two little ants crawling across the landscape that lends itself to them being missed. But yeah, and so one of the key points is even just within that is going to Kirithungal. Like their lack of information is both a danger because they don't know what Gollum is doing. They can't guess really. Mm-hmm. They know it's probably not necessarily to their advantage. But they don't know what he's leading them to, which allows them to move forward. Yeah. But equally, they are essentially being led into a trap. Yeah, they know that he's treacherous, but they also... No one can have someone trust that he's not a complete servant of the enemy. Yeah. I think that's what kind of redeems it. Mm. Not redeems it, but makes it possible. That they know he's not... He's sold on the ring, not on 
um, Sauron having the ring. Yeah, that's really true. And so there's this great quote from it, which I love, where it begins with Frodo saying, is it not guarded? Yes, yes, perhaps. No safe places in this country, said Gollum sulkily. No safe places. But Master must try it or go home. No other way. They could not get him to say more. The name of the perilous place and the high pass he could not tell, or would not. Its name was Kirithungal, a name of dreadful rumour. Aragorn could perhaps have told them that name and its significance. Gandalf would have warned them. But they were alone, and Aragorn was far away, and Gandalf stood amid the ruin of Isengard and strove with Saruman, delayed by treason. I love how pointed that is that their guides have been separated from them and yet they must act. Um, And how much almost having that extra information wouldn't have helped them. Mm -hmm. In that there's not really a sense that there was another safer way in. Mm -hmm. As dangerous as Kirithungal is. Yeah. Would knowing that Sheila was there have helped? Would it have meant that they didn't go in and went round a different way and then the destruction that Sauron wrought would have been far greater before they managed to destroy the ring? Yeah. But the fact that they, coming back to that point of action, mm. the fact that they act on the information that they have allows Grace to step in yeah. and get them through it. And also that like it's it reminds me of how much that the treason of Saruman is such a betrayal mm, yeah you know, absolutely that it does take Gandalf away from them because even if you think of it the reason the only reason they were in Moria was because they couldn't go around by Orthanc yeah that that betrayal has these far-reaching consequences which mean that Fro- Frodo and Sam have to make these decisions alone which is such a terrible place to put them in and jeopardizes their mission which Saruman is so totally taken in by Sauron's plan and we're going to come to that with the Palantir in Mm. a minute but that he himself is standing in the way of it being overthrown and obviously at that stage he's gone over to it he would be happy with that information but that he wouldn't have believed in the possibility of them succeeding and so he's made himself yet another obstacle and it just goes to me to like how much us justifying our own betrayals or in small ways mm-hmm. have these huge effects yeah and like we mentioned earlier with that letter mm. um that's such a key point where barleyman who's the innkeeper of the prancing pony hasn't sent the letter that he was supposed to have sent mm. and that failure to do the simple tasks appointed to him which is a far smaller failure than Saruman's um treachery even that failure has a massive consequence mm. uh, which is really interesting To bring us back to the rest of the fellowship for a minute, for Aragorn when they're splitting, Mm. I think it's really interesting the lack of information that Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli have Mm. because they have to... It's riddle me this. Mm. Um, The whole journey, like, from when Frodo and Sam leave and Merry and Pippin are taken by the orcs through to when Merry and Pippin enter Fangorn and even beyond that, the whole thing is riddle me this. And they have to gather the information that they can find and like the signs that the land gives them which is such a bizarre concept for us to even Mm. like understand how you might read that and work on that information as best they can yeah yeah and it's interesting that um you know aragorn is separated from sam who's the one who finds frodo because he wants to kind of gather information he wants to go up to the Mm, seeing stone yeah 
and uh, the seeing seat and he does that and he recognizes that he's made a bad choice. He says, alas, an ill fate is on me this day and all that I do goes amiss. Where is Sam? And then, like you said, you know, they're faced with this complete mess of information when they come back. And uh, he says, but we do not know whether the ring bearer is with them or not, said Aragorn. Are we to abandon him? Must we not seek him first? An evil choice is now before us. Then let us do first what we must do, said Legolas. And that's such an interesting thing of like, okay, well, the first thing you have to do is the thing that's directly in front of you, no matter what. Which is burying Boromir at that point. Yeah, putting Boromir to rest. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um, like, they, Yeah, their call first is to put Boromir to rest. Mm. And it's almost only by doing that that they get the other bits of information that gives them some clue as to what else happened mm. to be able to make the next decision. Yeah, and it's such a big theme. And so I want to come to these like secondary themes of like the gathering of information and the action point. So I'm just going to run through. We have a couple of more of the key examples of like missing information, but I'm just going to like power through them. One that I love is when Frodo has been stung by Shelob and Sam has to make the decision of what to do and he takes the ring and then he hears the orcs coming and they're going to find Frodo and he realizes that it, it was the wrong decision he should have been with his master and that's such an interesting moment and one that we could talk about for a whole hour so I'm going to just stop there <laughs> when you get commissioned to write your book you'll dedicate a chapter to it <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got even the arrival of the Rohirrim on the for the battle of the Pelennor fields that there was a messenger who was supposed to let Gondor and Minas Tirith know that they're coming that messenger gets killed they have no idea in the middle of the siege that there is a host of uh, Rohirrim coming to help them that everyone's making these decisions about the battle without that information and then also for me one of the really key moments is when they decide after the battle of the Pelennor Fields to go to the Black Gate and there's this great diversion and essentially like a trap that they're trying to do and it's all done on this supposition that Sam and Frodo might, might be trying to still destroy the ring. And so they're going to sacrifice all of their best people and their remaining strength to this hope that maybe this is what's going to happen. And then even when they get there, there's this amazing moment of misinformation where the mouth of Sauron throws down the mithril vest of Frodo and says, we have caught him, you you don't have anything. And they still have to go forward with that, that misleading information. And it's so powerful, especially in that leapfrogging way of telling the story. I always think it's so interesting at the end of each of the books, we're kind of left on a cliffhanger, but not a nihilistic one. I think you really brought that up, that like the characters are left in peril, but not despair. So the end of book four with Sam and Frodo in Cirithungal does end with the the orcs have caught Frodo they're bringing him to their tower and that is a really dire moment but if if Tolkien had ended it you know a chapter or so before with half a chapter even with Frodo just dead that would have been a much more nihilistic ending yeah we're always left with some hope Mm -hmm. like for the orcs have Frodo, but Sam is going after them, and Sam has the ring. Yeah. And we know that Sam has the ring. Yeah. Um, but no one else does, but we do. We do. But there is that still that great moment, especially the first time you're reading it, when yeah. the mouth of Sauron throws down the cloak and the mithril vest and the sword, and you're like, you don't know what's happened to yeah. Frodo. You have no idea. And it just holds you in that suspense, and you're there with Pippin and Gandalf and Aragorn going, 
well, what do you do now? You yeah. know? And that's such an interesting moment of the temptation at the last minute to give in to despair mm. and party with the enemy that cannot be partied with. Mm. Um, and yet instead, there's the information that isn't there. Like, the mythical coat is there, but Sting isn't. Yeah. And it's having to hope as much on the information that isn't given yeah. as the information that is. And continue with what you know to be the right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that leads us really well into our second section, which is this kind of interesting idea that Tolkien has about the fact that trying to gain knowledge and accrue information before you act can actually be to your own detriment. And especially when we see it being, you know, gathered in what I'm going to say is devious means I think you know we're going to discuss that like when I say that I mean more magical means such as like the mirror of Galadriel or the seat at Almond Hen or specifically the Palantir that extraordinary means yeah perhaps but there is a sense in which using these extra world elements to try and gather information is really dangerous and difficult and tricky and how to balance that kind of information and how it can really lead you astray um, and I think it's such an interesting element to what I would say is a certain insight that Tolkien has to actually technology because as much as these are magical objects they are kind of the technology of Middle Earth if that makes sense uh, and as I said uh, earlier I really don't want to create a stereotype of Tolkien as like an anti-technology person I mentioned this already but we had that discussion with Holly Ordway about her her book Tolkien's Modern Reading which goes into all of the ways that um, Tolkien wasn't just stuck in the medieval time, <laughs> that he was actually engaging with the modern world around him, both in the literature that he read, which is the main focus of the book, but also the ways that he just engaged with the world. He was he was really in, interested by typewriters and actually voice recorders. He would probably be pretty interested in podcasts, believe it or not. Uh, he had his own tape recorder and recorded some talks for the BBC. He was kind of a pioneer in terms of using typewriters and even things like ballpoint pens, which were very new at the time. Yeah, I loved her point about that being the cutting edge of technology, that we see typewriters and we're still like, fuddy-duddy. <laughs> but that he was actually interested in what was cutting edge technology and how to best use it to serve good purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And even things like cars. He was... He was interested in driving cars he liked them I think his bigger problem was with actually the destruction of the countryside through roads and so he's, he kind of makes a point that like things can be good in small numbers and bad in big numbers so I, I just think it's it's too simplistic to talk about him just because he was extremely interested in preserving history and landscape and countrysides and you know had a certain fear of the spreading nature of industrial wastelands in some ways that that doesn't mean he was anti-technology but despite all of that I think he has a really prescient insight into the way that technology shares information and that it often only gives you a very slanted view of the information that it's giving you and it leads you to draw poor conclusions. Essentially what we're saying is that our phones and TVs are palantirs. 
Yeah, I think about that a lot. That I, in some ways, I'm probably glad that Tolkien didn't live to see this this era. I think it would have scared him quite a bit. Which is that if the problem of Middle Earth is that there's too little information being shared, I think the problem of our world is that there is far, far too much information being shared. And you know, always caveat this with you know, I'm very aware that anyone listening to this podcast has downloaded it from the internet and is listening probably on their phone. Um, so I, it's not my place to be a lot either but that there is a sense that he really captures something which is the the way that both technology and the information on it can be slanted and also how it can paralyze you in what you're supposed to do and so there's some kind of key moments that we're going to pull out I think Galadriel's mirror is an obvious one mm-hmm. yeah I think it's really interesting how she talks about the mirror and its pros and its cons which mm. is kind of maybe something that we can think about in uh, relation to technology many things I can command the mirror to reveal she answered and to some I can show what they desire to see but the mirror will also show things unbidden and those are often stranger and more profitable than things which we wish to behold what you will see if you leave the mirror free to work I cannot tell for it shows things that were and things that are and things that may yet be but which it is that he sees even the wisest cannot always tell do you wish to look and then it kind of goes on to describe the things they see in the mirror, which I think are slightly less important than what she says afterwards. Because Sam has seen the destruction of the Shire as one of the things in the mirror. And he's about to run home, abandon the quest to run home. And she reminds him, you cannot go home alone, said the lady. You did not wish to go home without your master before you looked in the mirror. And yet you knew that evil things might well be happening in the Shire. Remember that the mirror shows many things, and not all have yet come to pass. Some never come to be, unless those that behold the visions turn aside from their paths to prevent them. The mirror is dangerous as a guide of deeds. Mm, yeah. And to me, I think that's such a key point about that form of technology, that the mirror is da- like it's dangerous as a form of deeds. And yet she later says to Frodo... You may learn something, and whether what you see be fair or evil, that it may be profitable, and yet it may not. Seeing is both good and perilous. Mm. So in that sense, in terms of the mirror, it's not wrong to look always. Yeah. But it's that sense of it's dangerous as a guide of deeds, which is so much more critical to the whole discussion. And it's also dangerous in the temptation to despair which is immediately the temptation that comes over Sam. Yeah. To despair, give up the quest and try and abort that evil mm. through an action which would actually lead to much greater evil. Yeah. And I think that's so important and that there's that tendency to see the worst. And, and, and also that like that twist of fate, isn't it always the way that like it's in Macbeth as well, that the prophecy that you see in, in trying to avert it you enact it yeah and so in again that's another reason why it's it's a dangerous as a guide of deeds because mm-hmm. you know just because you think that you can change the path of history to avoid it you might actually end up causing it and so it's better to focus on the thing that has been set in front of you and i think that's something we keep coming back to and that there's a real temptation like you said to despair and 
Another one of the, the key moments for that, to me, is also the seated Amon Hen, which doesn't, I think, strike people as memorably as like a, like a magical object, because in some ways, is it magical? It's just like this seat on a high hill that like allows you to see a lot of things, but it does seem to have this farsightedness that is actually enhanced by something kind of supernatural in it. And so when Frodo goes up to it, he, it says... But everywhere he looked, he saw signs of war. The misty mountains were crawling like antils. Orcs were issuing out of a thousand holes. Under the boughs of Mirkwood, there was a deadly strife of elves and men and fell beasts. The land of the Bjornings was aflame. A cloud was over Moria. Smoke rose on the borders of Lorien. Horsemen were galloping on the grass of Rohan. Wolves poured from Isengard. From the havens of harried ships of war put out to sea. And out of the east... Men were moving endlessly, swordsmen, spearmen, bowmen upon horses, chariots of chieftains and laden wains. All the power of the Dark Lord was in motion. Then turning south again, he beheld Minas Tirith. Far away it seemed and beautiful, white-walled, many-towered, proud and fair upon its mountain seat, its battlements glittered with steel, and its turrets were bright with many banners. Hope leaped in his heart, but against Minas Tirith was set another fortress, greater and more strong. Thither eastward, unwilling, his eye was drawn. It passed the ruined bridges of Asgiliath, the grinning gates of Minas Morgul, and the haunted mountains, and it looked upon Gorgoroth, the valley of terror in the land of Mordor. Darkness lay there under the sun. Fire glowed amid the smoke. Mount Doom was burning and a great reek rising. Then at last his gaze was held, wall upon wall, battlement upon battlement, black, immeasurably strong, mountain of iron, gate of steel, tower of adamant. He sought Barad-dûr, fortress of Sauron. All hope left him. Mm. I think that's such an important point of the temptation to despair that the knowledge he's given on the feet of our, of um, Armin Hen cripples him, mm. and he has to fight against that in order to be able to go on with the task he's being given. And it really ties back in with earlier in the Fellowship where uh, they encounter the elf Gildor in the Shire mm. and he won't tell them the true nature of the ring rates. He says that, I think it is not for me to say more lest terror should keep you from your journey. And that's such an important point in the whole thing of information being given at the right times and sometimes being withheld. And I think it's a really important thing for us to think about in our own lives mm. um, of where is it sometimes appropriate to withhold information or to kind of mentally discard parts of information that aren't to do with the tasks that we've been given. Like we help run these um, large youth festivals and there's been a number of times on those where there's all this information and you have a specific job to do in that and you need you're trusting other people to give you the information relevant to that task because you can't know everything yeah. and if you try to if you try to know everything you end up not doing the task in front of you yeah um so i think it's such an important like point that we forget about because we're so used to thinking that knowledge is power and 
more information is always a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think there's a really interesting line from Tom Shippey's book, and we're actually going to get into it because we're going to move to the Palantiri, which is something that he's written about quite well. But before that, he's talking about how Frodo feels like he has reasons to despair and doubt, but the key is that he keeps on choosing to go forward. Mm. And rereading it this time, I was really struck by how much it's just a force of virtuous habit that keeps him going forward, even when he's kind of already lost the strength to actually give up the ring, that he's still moving forward to destroy it. But he says, evil works, we realise, by sapping the will with overcomplication. And I think that's so interesting Mm. that we can make it so that because we have so much information there's no clear place to start there's no obvious way to fix everything and so you feel like we might as well fix nothing you know and that it does again lead us to despair i think this is like a theme that crops up over and over again that trying to seek into the minds of evil and trying to gather all of the information possible can lead us towards a sense of despair. And so moving towards the Palantir, I think it's just so great. Um, He has quite a long section. I won't read all of it, but I'll I'll pull out some of it. He's listing out the four times in Tolkien's work that the Palantir is used. And he says, the first occasion is when Pippin picks up the Palantir, thrown from Orthanc by Grima, and later sneaks a look at it when Gandalf is asleep. In the stone, he sees Sauron and Sauron sees him. But though Sauron sees Pippin, he draws from this a wrong conclusion. Namely that Pippin is the ring bearer and that he has been captured by Saruman, who now has the ring. The next day, Aragorn, who has been given the stone by Gandalf, deliberately shows himself in it to Sauron. And once again, Sauron draws the wrong conclusion. Namely, that Aragorn has overpowered Saruman and that he is now the owner of the ring. It is fear of this new power arising which makes Sauron launch his premature attack, and Gandalf indeed realises that this was all along Aragorn's intention. Gandalf summarises that it was the Palantir which was Saruman's downfall. As he looked in it, he saw only what Sauron allowed him to see, and once more he drew the wrong conclusion, losing heart and deciding that resistance would be futile. And then he goes on to say that actually the last time that it's used in the course of the novel is after Faramir has been hurt, Denethor goes up into his tower and looks in the Palantir, which he has been doing over the course of like the preceding kind of months. This this time in particular seems particularly detrimental. Um, And when he comes down, what does he have? Despair. He gives up and he ends up committing suicide because of what he sees. He sees the towers. He sees specifically the ships coming up from Pelagir, which he believes will be an extra force, which will mean that there's no hope of them withstanding the siege, but is actually... Aragorn, that unlooked for hope that he doesn't understand. But there's also a suggestion that he has seen something in Mordor which suggests that Frodo has failed in his mission. Perhaps maybe the mithril coat, because he comes down saying the wizard's plan has failed. And so there is this sense of like he has given up hope in all direction. And so it's this need that he has to try and see what's going to happen that leads him to despair. Yeah, that this continuous use of the Palantir Mm. is driving him to despair. Yeah. That he's been undermining himself and letting Sauron deceive him, not by being shown information that wasn't true, 
by by not being given the whole picture. Yeah. And it's the same with Saruman, except that he goes further and commits himself to Sauron's side and gives in to that despair in a completely different way. Yeah. But then how that also gets used against Sauron. Yeah. That those who just, who look in it, not looking for information, actually give information to the enemy for him to draw the wrong conclusions. Mm. Um, so it's such an interesting dichotomy on both sides that they're both like... Yeah. And it also works for and against Sauron, basically. And also it's the, just providence that yeah. some of the things happen that... Pippin picks up Absolutely, the stone yeah. and that he, he then goes to look in it and all of these great moments of like chance happening. And I think that brings us to our third section, which is talking about how what Tolkien often suggests is that instead what's being asked of us is to do the task at hand, to mm. look to the thing that you have been tasked with doing and to keep going at it regardless of what's happening around you. And I think that's so pertinent to the way that you know, a lot of the descriptions of World War One convey, which is that, you know, looking down the line to see whether your friend is still alive is probably the thing that's going to keep your eye off the thing long enough for you to get hit by something. That, like, you have to not waver from what your task is and not look behind you and not, like, not get distracted. And, it, like, there's that sense that as desperate and as sad as it is and it is horrific like when you think about it but that the only thing keeping you going is keeping going yeah and there is also a sense i think maybe with aragon using the plant here that making a decision on what the right thing to do is Mm. and then following through yeah so like he uses the plant here because he has made the decision to take the role of king of gondor yeah and to draw the enemy's ire yeah and like he has made that choice as it is his right to do it's not like gandalf has told him to do it you know um and i think that's a really interesting point but then he has to keep following through um and figure out a way to make that happen yeah and to not give up hope like that despair is the enemy and just like another quote from tom shippey's book it says that what one can be absolutely sure about is that giving up does the other side's work for them mm. and ruins all your own possible futures and other people's as well. Yeah. And I think that's so key in the way that the story is told because you have, you know, Denethor not only taking his own life but trying to take Faramir's as well brings Gandalf away from the battle, which means that essentially it's directly responsible for the death of Theoden because Gandalf would have wanted to be on the on the battlefield to fight the witch king of Angmar, who is in some ways his direct foe. Like Gandalf is sort of set out against the Black Riders. Yeah, he's kind of the only person who can stand against the Black Riders at this point. Yeah. And he's suddenly being called away by Pippin. Yeah. And yet he recognises that that too is a task for him. Yeah. Um, And yet he says, but evil and sorrow will come of this. Yeah. And like when I was rereading it this time, I was really struck by how in some ways Gandalf really doesn't get to do a lot in that siege that like it feels like he's right poised to make a big difference. And then he gets pulled away to this other thing and how destructive that is and how much it takes away from what should be happening. And he keeps saying things like that, that like this is this is the work of the enemy when we're fighting among ourselves, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it, it's so powerful in that. And I just think 
there is such a, an interesting point that Tolkien is making and I think it's really highlighted in Frodo like I said he keeps going even though he totally feels like it's funny there's a mirroring moment where both Aragorn and Frodo say like every decision I make goes amiss and we know that's not true but they have no reason not to feel like that's not true and so when they're kind of coming towards the end of their journey and Sam bless him is still really focused on whether they have enough food to get get out of there again and Frodo says but Samwise Gamgee my dear hobbit indeed Sam my dearest hobbit friend of friends I do not think we need give thought to what comes after that to do the job as you put it what hope is there that we ever shall and if we do who knows what will come of that if the one goes into the fire and we are at hand I ask you Sam are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. More than I can, I begin to feel. And there's a really interesting dynamic at play here because Frodo is right in that his objective is to get the ring in and he needs to not be focused on other things or worried about what else is happening. But there is a sense in which Sam, like Sam's purpose there is to be thinking of the journey back. It's Sam who, after they do throw the ring into the fire, he goes, let's get away from this exact moment, this exact place so that we can die maybe somewhere just a little bit further back. And and that's what allows them to be saved by the eagles. And so he is the one that is also, you know, Frodo is kind of leaning into despair. There is no yeah. hope after we do it. But there is this balance between saying the primacy that needs to be focused on is the task at hand, but also not falling into despair that, the, that there could be anything that comes after that. Yeah, Sam takes on the task of hoping and acting on that hope, mm-hmm. even when it seems futile. Like, they've got a volcano erupting around them, and he's still like, come on, let's run for it a little bit at least. And I think that brings us to our fourth point, which is that it, there's this sense in, in Tolkien that it's only in action that you provide these moments for grace and providence. And it doesn't make a kind of sort of uh, wide, broad kind of idea that like all action is good no matter what you're doing. Um, In fact, it constantly shows us that even when we make the right decisions, that doesn't isolate us from bad consequences. A bit like what we were saying with Gandalf. It Mm. is right that he goes and saves Faramir. But it does have a negative consequence. It means that Theoden is is killed. And so there is no bulletproof or like way to ensure yourself against terrible things happening. But that it is only when you constantly choose to do the right thing in front of you that you allow for the space for better things than you hoped to happen. In that, I think it really highlights, like we were saying right at the start of the episode, that delay is often the enemy. And so, you know, in leaving Bag End, that delay was not necessarily the best thing that they could have been doing. Procrastination, you know? (laughs) Exactly. And it comes up again with, at the breaking of the Fellowship, that is what inspires Frodo. When he's talking with Boromir, Boromir is pushing him to come to Minas Tirith and he says... I think I know already what counsel you would give Boromir, said Frodo, and it would seem like wisdom, but for the warning of my heart. Warning? Warning against what? said Boromir sharply. Against delay. Against the way that seems easier. Against refusal of the burden that is laid on me. 
against, well, if it must be said, against trust in the strength and truth of men. And there's a lot in that second part about not trusting the hearts of men and, and what Gondor stands for at that point. But the first part of that is so interesting, against refusal of the burden that's laid on me. You know, mm. that he has been tasked with something and that that task does not include diversions. Yeah. And like the bit at the end of um, against trust in the strength and truth of men is also very much against how we are called to trust mm-hmm. and hope. We're not called to trust in our own strength, but in the Lord. Yeah. And in a way, that's what he's being called to as well. Yeah. Resist the temptation of the ring when he's been given a task to do, and that task is to destroy it. Yeah. You know, it, it's also the same with Aragorn. And there's such a beautiful yeah. moment where Gandalf reassures him that he has done the best that he can, where he says, Come, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, do not regret your choice in the valley of the Emin Wheel, nor call it a vain pursuit. You chose amid doubts the path that seemed right. The choice was just, and it has been rewarded. For so we have met in time, who otherwise might have met too late. And there's just that wonderful sense that Tolkien is so masterful at conveying, which is that it's not about coincidence, or it's not even really about luck in a way, that it is about providence which isn't this thing that overrides your own choices or overrides your own actions but is almost like in doing the right thing it just sort of elevates you to that moment where the right outcome can happen usually from a quarter which you have absolutely no idea to look for yeah i was really struck by how many examples of this there were in the book because i'd heard the whole like you catastrophe talk of like the eagles rescuing sam and frodo when they think they're gonna die Mm. Um, like that hope that rescue after all hope has failed kind of thing Mm. but it comes up through the whole three books like um the battle at helm's deep when you've got the The when you've got the hurons coming and like defeating the orcs for at at minas tirith and the um battle on the fields of pelinor when you hear the horns of the rohirrim Mm. um it just it's repeating and repeating and even like in the battle of the fields of pelinor there's so many different incidents where things hang on a knife edge yeah to hold on to hope and to not expect hope to be entirely rational, which is not to say that the story works with like kind of tricks of like, oh, it was fine all along. Yeah. But to know that that the workings of everything is it's always going to be bigger than you. And so you can't foresee everything. And I think that is why Tolkien is saying that all information isn't always the thing that you need because what you need is trust that there might actually be information that you don't have that will come into play Mm -hmm. and I think it's really represented in actually the characters of Merry and Pippin those two characters actually represent the double-edged sword of, of it being providence and of them saving the day and of them being the the thing that like you know the little pebbles of the beginning of the earthquake that these are the rolling stones that precede a much bigger wave that changes wake the ants (laughs) exactly they wake the ants mary is there with his sword from the barrow whites to to break the spell of the witch king of angmar you know that there are all these things that come into play pippin is there to save faramir that you know they're all there and actually elrond 
didn't want them to be there, but didn't want them to be there because he saw the other evil consequence, because he wanted to send them back to the Shire to prevent bad things from happening in the Shire. And Phoebe and I listened to the scouring of the Shire last night. Oh, heartbreaking. (laughs) But, you know, that is a real evil. And now, thankfully, in the ways that things fell out, they were able to remedy a lot of that evil. But it was still an evil that happened because they didn't go home. And that's not to say that they should have gone to the Shire. I mean, we don't know what would have happened with the rest of the story if they had. They were so integral to other parts of it. But that balance that says you can absolutely see the workings of fate and providence in their actions, but that doesn't mean that they're insulated from all bad consequences. And so I just think it's lovely to to read out that section, which is so, so beautiful. Actually, Phoebe, I think you should read that one. Sure. But that will leave no place for us, cried Pippin in dismay. We don't want to be left behind. We want to go with Frodo. That is because you do not understand and cannot imagine what lies ahead, said Elrond. Neither does Frodo, said Gandalf, unexpectedly supporting Pippin, nor do any of us see clearly. It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go, that they would still wish to go, or wish that they dared, and be shamed and unhappy. I think, Elrond, that in this matter it would be well to trust rather in their friendship than to great wisdom. Even if you choose for us an elf lord, such as Glorfindel, he could not storm the dark tower, nor open the road to the fire by the power that is in him. You speak gravely, said Elrond, but I am in doubt. The shire I forbode is not free now from peril, and these two I had thought to send back there as messengers, to do what they could, according to the fashion of their country, to warn the people of their danger. In any case, I judge that the younger of these two, Peregrine Took, should remain. My heart is against his going." And then um, Tom Shapey makes a really good point that that in the end this he's proved both right and wrong. Yeah, and that Elrond kind of actually comes back and says generous deeds should not be outweighed by cold counsel. And I think that's really interesting that, yeah, there is an analytical thing that says, you know, maybe this isn't the smartest thing, maybe there's a better person who could go. And that actually it's it's the generosity of spirit that is maybe the deciding factor that it isn't about again like we said the qualities in the same way and so yeah that Pippin has this generosity of spirit to go even though he a doesn't understand and b if he did understand he would be paralyzed by fear yeah and I think that's such an interesting um tension of yeah, having information but not having too much information because they're not going into it thinking that it's going to be a walk in the park. No. They have already travelled through danger. Yeah. Um, and they know that they are going into more danger. And in a sense, that's kind of all they need to know. They know that they're going into danger, but they're doing it for love of Frodo. Yeah. And I think that really is an interesting point maybe to leave on, which is that, you know, there's a couple of things that T- Tolkien is demonstrating to us. It's the the temptation of evil to overcomplicate things and say and that actually often the thing that we need to do and that God wants us to do is whatever is the virtuous task that's been placed in front of us whether that's serving our families or you know carrying out the work that has been given to us diligently that you know we can overcomplicate things in some ways and see the big picture and feel like there's nothing we can do to change it but that there is also another element like he does talk about how you know, there is a need to care about the world enough to save it. Yeah. Um, Frodo does have to care to leave the Shire. Yeah. 
And that even, you know, there's a beautiful kind of thread that runs through it, which is how much the Shire is protected by the Rangers and that they don't really know. And that's a beautiful thing from the Rangers' point of view when they even say that, that we would rather than be ignorant of all of the work that goes into this. But it does leave the Hobbits vulnerable to being taken over when it comes to the scouring of the Shire because that they've been so complacent, because they haven't had to think about it. And so there is this balance that Tolkien is trying to kind of explore, which is how much of the world do you let into your mind and how much of that, if you consume too much, does it paralyze you from doing the good? But yeah, that I just think that it's such a powerful theme and kind of storytelling method that he uses in in the whole story of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's been so interesting to think about. Obviously, there are like 101 other themes that we could talk about, but we've skipped over those. <laughs> I mean, we've barely touched on this theme. Yeah. But <laughs> it's been so fun and I've been looking forward to doing this so much. Yeah, it's been great. So thank you, Phoebe. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. And so hopefully our Tolkien fans, I feel like I have to get one Tolkien episode in every year. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the first one with me? Yeah, that's right. I think... Mainly because you have a lot. We also have a lot of Tolkien nerd friends. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But yeah, well, you know, now we've we've joined you to the Tolkien (laughs) nerd (laughs) camp, which you were already largely in, Mm -hmm. but... We're, we're accelerating that. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And I guess that leaves us with one last question, which is, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I am reading Dracula. Or rereading Dracula, I should say. Um, and yeah, that's been really fun. It's a really good season for it. Yeah. And we went to the cinema, which was about the first time I'd been to the cinema in, what, two years? Three years? Not quite sure. To see Living. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah, I would definitely say that's the thing I've been enjoying at the moment as well. It's a remake of the Kurosawa film Ikuru. Which we uh, now have to go watch. Yes, uh, but we really enjoyed this remake. It was, I think the screenplay was by Kazuo Ishiguro and the main actor is Bill Nighy. And it's about a man who gets a terminal uh, diagnosis and decides to start living, as the title would imply. But it's set in, I think is it the 1950s, 1960s in London. And the the setting is so luscious and the acting is great. And it's quite a sweet film. It's Yeah, I, I would really recommend that as well. It's also like on our theme of like despair versus nihilism. It's very much on the like hope side of things, which is lovely. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed that. And then the other thing I've been enjoying is uh, Winters in the World by Eleanor Parker, which is a book which explores the Anglo-Saxon perspective and poetry about the different seasons. Um, so if you're looking for a Christmas present, it's a really good one if you have any interest in medieval literature or also just kind of seasonal perspectives of like how far back our idea of the seasons go. So yeah, I would really recommend that. I'm looking forward to reading it. <laughs> And then we have one more episode before Christmas. I think both Phoebe and I are feeling a little tentative because we're looking at our schedules. <laughs> but we really <laughs> hope goodness. we really hope to get a Christmas episode in to you. But other than that, just, you know, thanks again for listening. And you can find us on uh, Instagram at Risking Enchantment Podcast. I put a good bit of time into the images on that Instagram. So there's usually a lot to see. And yeah, and I'm on Twitter uh, at Seeking Watson and you can get our emails if you sign up to our newsletter on my website, which is rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. All that's left to say now is goodbye. Bye.
This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.